0: Earl K. Miller is the Picower Professor of Neuroscience in the Picower Institute for Learning and Memory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Miller studies the neural basis of executive control, the ability to carry out goal-directed behavior using complex mental processes and cognitive abilities. This work has established a foundation upon which to construct more detailed, mechanistic accounts of cognition and its dysfunction in diseases such as autism, schizophrenia, and attention deficit disorder. He is a recipient of a variety of awards, And his paper with Jonathan Cohen, which presented a new framework for understanding the prefrontal cortex, ranks fifth all time in citations in neuroscience.
1: Professor Earl Miller, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell us about your journey. What drew you to cognitive neuroscience and what is it about your discipline that makes it endlessly fascinating for you?
2: Well, that's a sort of two different questions. What, what drew me to it is a bit of a Kurt Vonnegut serendipity kind of a- accident of history is that I was a pre-med major, and I was told I should volunteer in a research laboratory because it'll help me get into medical school. So I volunteered to work in a neuroscience laboratory, and in the moment, I remember the first experiment I ever did, and the moment I did it, I was just instantly hooked, and that was it in my mind, and then probably within the next week, I switched from pre-med do what we used to call biological psychology. Now we call it neuroscience or cognitive neuroscience.
1: Yes. And so how have, the discoveries that you and collectively you've made during your time in neuroscience, of course, you've been well honored for it, but it seems to me, you know, it's the ultimate, well, we say gray area because so we don't know, it's still so mysterious and yet we carry it around with us all the time.
2: Yeah, exactly right. And that's how I got so easily sucked into it is that um, once I looked at it as just a way to, you know, further my uh, medical career and then uh once I started thinking about the brain and about, you know, what is it that makes us us, just this stuff inside your skull, I just found it to be an endlessly fascinating problem, and I still do. I mean, everything, it's it's like, a, how do we organize our thoughts? How do we direct our action towards goals? What is consciousness, and why can we only think about one thing at a time? I mean, these... In the end, I really like solving puzzles, and this is the greatest puzzle of all time as far as I'm concerned. I'm biased.
1: Well, I definitely, I mean, yes, even they seem simple questions like where do our thoughts come from? Where do ideas come from? I mean, but we still don't know. No there's all these waves. You you mentioned the metaphor of a puzzle. That is one way of looking at it, but we now know there's the, all these other, you know, complicated activities taking place on a conscious and an unconscious level. And added into the mix in recent years, you know, our brains are changing, our, our devices are kind of changing our brains, you know, if we're not protecting ourselves. So um,
2: well, well, let me interrupt there for a moment because our brains are not changing. Our devices are, and that's a problem because we have, we have too many distractions now. Our brains are not wired to deal with this information ritual world where everything is sort of vying for our attention. We, we our brains evolved in a very um, information-poor environment where there's much less information available, so our brains evolved to be kind of single-minded. And this is like now a perfect storm of cognitive degradation with all these smartphones and screens and everything just constantly pinging at us it's not not, our brains are not equipped to do this
1: excuse me yes we're not evolving at the same pace our brains are not evolving at the same pace that our devices are maybe the chemistry i should say is kind of in response i I don't think you can throw this much stimulus at anyone not to mention to children you know young people who are still forming without some kind of confusion taking place and you actually mentioned yeah, when our brains evolved so it makes me think about you know predators or animals you know that laser focus that they have Mm -hmm. and how we kind of lose that because we can't focus in on it our bandwidth you know it's a limited bandwidth right
2: Right. That's a good point because um, our brains evolved in an environment where there was predator-prey relationships and any new bit of information was extremely valuable. Like a bit of rustling in the bushes might mean a uh, tiger is going to leap out at us. Our brains evolved to crave new information because the new information was highly adaptable. It could mean our survival. So as a result, our brains are constantly looking for new sources of input. And that wasn't a big deal back when our brains first evolved because there wasn't a lot of um, information out there and and anything we could focus on whether we're potential prey or predators was the only thing we really needed to focus on at that that given moment so our brains evolved along those lines, but now we have uh, dozens things tapping at us constantly. Our brains want to pay attention to each one because of this position we have to um, crave new information. But it doesn't work so well in this environment when, there, when there's so many things
1: tapping at us. Exactly. Um, and and we know that these devices have been designed. You're aware of it too. They've hired, you know, taught people like you, not you yourself, but in the field of neuroscience to make these devices addictive. So we stay there longer, hopefully make purchases or all these yep. kind of things. So it's something that's been on a lot of our minds, whether we study neuroscience or not is Focus. Uh, you know, as you say, we can't deal with all this information we're bombarded with. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the need for regulation. You know, how might we protect our children from the distractions? Because they they're most vulnerable in terms of their their brain still developing.
2: I'm not going to get into the realm of public policy and and lawmaking. It's not not what I do. But I will say that I do give people advice. They have to try to avoid all these distractions. They have they have to monotask, not multitask. And that's very critical, but how do you do it? How do you do it when we have, our brains are constantly craving new information? And the way we do it, I think, is we, we wanna remove the temptation. If you want to focus, you you uh, you know you don't have multiple screens of computers, try to use as, as one or two, as, as few screens as possible, so not a constant other screen vying for your attention. Put away your cell phone, put it out of reach if you have to, put it across the room, put it in a different room so you're not tempted to constantly pick it up. Because that thing is the, that new information source is always going to be tapping on your on your shoulder, so what you need to do is you need to be proactive. You need to plan. You need to um, get rid of distractions so they're they're not constantly vying for, vying for your attention. And that just personal personal behavior. Um, I find myself doing it like if I'm on um, just now when we started this uh, this uh, interview I uh, put my I turned my phone off and put it across the room because if it was sitting right here even knowing what I know I have this temptation to keep reaching for my phone so I avoid that distraction by putting my phone out of reach and turning it off so it's completely out of mind.
1: Yes. And I want to get to later, because you've also done in your research, you discovered that we all perceive the world differently, but they have these hot spots. Um, A bit more about the distractions related to that. Most of us live in cities full of noise, full of distractions. And how do you feel about our well-being, being around nature we know makes us feel safe and secure? And what are your views on cities and how that might distract us in our focus?
2: Sure. There's a lot, lot of distractions in cities. So it's always good to like, take some time out and be in a quieter place where there's no distractions. So you can let your, your thoughts run. And then that, that leads into the creative process because of new ideas, new thoughts, where they come from, they, they come from following the garden path of associations in your mind. You, your one thought leads another, leads to another, leads to another until you're mind is in a new place it's never been before or you put two thoughts together that were never there never together before but now they are because you managed to somehow follow this garden path of thoughts from one one to the other that's where creativity comes from that's where new ideas come from seeing things in a new way putting together things that were never together before and if you have constant distractions that interferes with that process because every distraction it's a side trip away from that garden pathway it's it it knocks you it temporarily disrupts this process of following thoughts from one to another and if you can't really let your mind wander to follow those those new pathways then you never get
1: there i think our minds are always trying to solve problems right like we're problem solving machines yeah. and i feel that sometimes creativity comes out of, you know, having some information, having a kind of memory of one's experiences, but then also I feel, and others have shared this too, it like a taking away of information. So if you only know A and D, but you have to figure out how they got there, then not say, oh, you start making up a story.
2: Inference, you have to infer some relationship that wasn't directly experienced. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the other thing to keep in mind about this is that, um you know, we we we, being humans, we overvalue the conscious mind consciousness is really kind of the tip of the iceberg. And a lot of times consciousness is along for the ride. Consciousness, I like to tell my students that consciousness is often the story, not always, but consciousness is often the story that your brain makes up to explain what it just did. A lot of the thoughts are going on in your brain are happening at the unconscious level. Your brain is churning away on problems. And then it's suddenly, the answer is suddenly, um, pops into your head, is like a, um, a gut feeling of a decision or a sudden new idea that pops into your head. And the reason for this is because your conscious mind, for the reasons we discussed earlier about multitasking and monotasking and distractions, your conscious mind is very limited in bandwidth. We really are single-minded. We only can think of one or two thoughts at a time. Creativity is very complex. You're pulling together and synthesizing a lot of information from a lot of sources. So that's hard to do in your conscious mind because of this limited bandwidth, the single mindedness we have. So the way your brain does this, your brain below the level of consciousness, your brain is capacity unlimited. It's constantly churning together these things that you've been thinking about. And then all of a sudden they, they occur to you uh, uh, because your unconscious mind has put the answer together then communicates it to your, to your conscious mind. This is why we have a lot of, uh, a lot of people report having new thoughts when they're in the shower or they're falling asleep at night when their mind is completely elsewhere. And this is actually kind of part of my own creative process because uh, if I'm working on a problem and I can't like a new hypothesis or a new theory or a new way of getting the information into my brain, but then I find that if I go do something else, I I play an instrument, so I go, I play a little music or I go, I take a walk or I do something that just distracts from the problem at hand, then the answer comes to me because not only does it, it frees up your conscious mind to allow these these unconscious thoughts, these new synthesis from your unconscious, it allows it to reach consciousness, because otherwise your conscious mind can get in the way. It 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 uh, it's it's a uh, it's following these these narrow minded pathways that you're you're consciously following and doesn't allow the new ideas to bubble up from unconscious.
1: Exactly, and and I'm so glad to hear that from you and uh uh because your your background in neuroscience, because sometimes, um you know, sometimes the instinctive mind or the unconscious mind is that, oh, that kind of like spontaneity or improvisation is kind of undervalued because it seems to come easy. It kind of flows. It doesn't feel full of effort.
2: Because you have to do all that front work to get the information in there. So your mind, your unconscious mind has something to churn on. Is that when it finally comes, it seems like it was um, effortless, but there were a lot of effort went into it to prepare your mind, prepare your brain to come, come to that conclusion.
1: And I also think that we do great, you know, we, we, when we're inspired by love or we're inspired by a joy, like, I think that things flow better that way. And so it can be fun. It doesn't have to be uh, painful. I would say, I, I often think of, uh, you know, like a bird in the sky, you know, the way, it, if it had to stop and think, this is like the you would think, oh, it's impossible. I'm going to fall. I'm on the fall. And then you fall. But yeah. this kind of unconscious, one, you can kind of ride the air.
2: That's exactly right. I mean, think about it. If you had to consciously make every decision you possibly you, you make every day, your mind would be bogged down. There's too many things to consider. So uh, not only is that limit to your scope and what you can think about, but your conscious mind is also slow. It takes you time to, to make the right decision, it takes you time to, to make the right action. So it could make decisions very, very quickly without the slower intervention of your of your, of your conscious mind. So it's adaptive that we really consciousness is only the, the tip of the iceberg of what's going on, going on in our brains, because a lot of stuff our brains need to do, they need to do it quick and you need to weigh a lot of information very quickly. And consciousness would just get in the way because of this narrow-mindedness the conscious mind has.
1: And also, you are a musician. I'm wondering how music inspires you or frees you up. Or you mentioned getting ideas, and so how does yeah. the scientist and the musician reside together?
2: Well, I mean, like mu- music is great. Playing music is great. Listening too, but playing music is great because it's a great stress reliever. It sort of gets your mind up. When you're playing music, you're focusing on on music you really can't think about anything else. So it, it's, a, it's a meditative thing for me. I can not think about whatever, if something's bothering me, or I'm troubled about some problem, or I, I've been working hard and I can't come, come up with the right answer. It puts my mind in a different place where I can relax. And I, and then again, it has, has that um, added benefit of getting my conscious mind out of the way so then these new ideas can, can bubble up. And sometimes that does happen to me when I'm playing music. I'm not thinking about the problem I've been thinking about all day. And suddenly the answer occurs to me because I've gotten my conscious mind out of the way and focused on something else, the making of the music.
1: It's interesting because there are many languages and we say that music is a language and sometimes it involves verbal language but often it's tone and other forms of communication. And so I'm wondering, and some people prefer that they feel it's a pure, purer communication that doesn't need translation. I'm wondering what your reflections on uh, how language influences our consciousness, our subconscious—you know, how it. Language may make us notice things or prioritize things over others, and then there's these kind of uh, cultural comparisons where there's, you know, people have a uh, cultures that have a strong oral tradition and those that are more uh, have a written tradition. So, what are your reflections as you make these comparisons and observations?
2: Sure, language is a, is um is highly symbolic. So, what language is really good for is is um is data compression. I mean, it, it categorizes the world around us. If I walk into a room and I can label things as a chair or a table, I know instantly what those things are and what they're used for. And that's a form of categorization. And categorization is the ultimate form, one of the ultimate forms of data compression in your brain. If I had to process every little detail of everything around me, my brain would be be completely overwhelmed. And imagine if um, when I walk into a room I've never been in before and I see a chair or a table I've never seen before. If I had to, recompute what those things are every time I see something that's new, a slightly different shape or a variation of something I already know, again, my brain would be um, would be quickly bogged down, it would be overwhelmed. But having these labels, like chair, table, instantly I know that I, my brain gets past the details which may, may or may not be relevant. Uh, often are irrelevant and I get the essence of what what things are so it's a way of your brain it's a way your brain has dealt with the limitation of uh, bandwidth of your conscious mind by by compressing things into into e- easy labels into labels that can uh that get at the essence of things and throw away the details that we may not need in order to interact with them and use them
1: yes so it really I mean we couldn't it's very hard to function without memory, and there are fascinating cases, and then maybe you could share some interesting case studies. I don't know if you're directly involved or not, but in terms of studying people who've had you know, long-term amnesia and what that tells us about parts of the brain and just how difficult it would be to go throughout the world like this, everything new all the time.
2: Oh, sure. The classic example of that is a, is a famous patient called H.M., HM had his um, hippocampus removed many years ago, 1956, I, I forget, like that long ago, um, because he had intractable epilepsy. And epilepsy often starts in near the hippocampus of your brain. So at the time, the, the doctors thought, well, let's remove his hippocampus, and that will um, alleviate his epilepsy. Well, that worked. It did greatly alleviate his epilepsy, but it left him without the it left him with long-term antergrade amnesia. He can no longer form new memories. And that was for him, I've met HM before he died a number of years ago. And for him, it was like, he said he was like just constantly waking up for a dream. Every moment was as if if he just woke up. He could maintain a train of thought for a few seconds but the moment he was distracted, it was all gone. And then uh, every moment was just like, constantly waking up so we uh and you can imagine how disorienting that that is so yeah we need our memory our memories put us in context our memories are autobiographical our memories our memories tell tell us where we are what we're doing why we're doing it gives it gives us that broader perspective we need to place ourselves and know where we are and where we're going
1: yeah, I mean, we are, I believe, the stories we tell ourselves. And, um, and so it's so fascinating to learn about this because we can tell ourselves positive stories and rewrite our futures or even our pasts to not yeah. remember things in a traumatic or painful way. That's an interesting
2: point because one of the things we've learned about memory over the years or perception for that matter is that a lot of memory is a, is a reconstruction. We don't actually experience the world as it actually is. We see what we want to see in the world our brain is constantly making predictions about what what we're going to experience next, what we're going to experience in the next few seconds. So why is your brain making these predictions? It's because your brain can't process all the sensory information that's flooding into it. Our brains will be overwhelmed. So our brains make predictions about what's coming next, And we only really fully process the stuff that's unexpected, the stuff that we didn't expect, because by definition, unexpected things are more informative. If we could predict something, we knew it was gonna be there, it's not very important or interesting to us. So your brain is, is, is constantly making predictions and really only processing the things that don't match our predictions. But as a result, a lot of what we see day in, day out are things we expect to see we don't often notice the things that don't match our, our predictions. So we, what we often see are things that, that we expected, which is why things like eyewitness testimony is like the worst evidence ever. You can see like six people witness the exact same event and they will tell six different stories about what happened. Well, the movie Rashomon is a good example of that, where, where uh, I think five people see two samurais fighting. The whole rest of the movie is each of them telling what they saw and they saw five completely different, different stories. But there's examples of this all over the place, like uh, one famous example from a a book written by Alan Badley, who's a a memory researcher. He told a story about a a person who was um, in their apartment one night watching TV, and someone broke into their apartment and robbed them and attacked them. And next day, they're walking down the street, and they see the, the person who attacked them. So they call the police, the police come and arrest, arrest the guy, and they say, where were you at 10 o'clock last night when this person's apartment got broken into? And the person who was arrested said, oh, I was being interviewed on live TV. So ironclad alibi, right? The person who was attacked kept insisting, no, you got it wrong. I know that's the person that attacked me. The police eventually caught the actual attacker because it was a serial uh, robber, and when they confronted the person, the person still insisted, no, I don't care what you said. I know that's the person that attacked me. What they eventually figured out is the victim was watching the um, person on TV when the robber broke in and attacked them. So their brain put two and two together and got five. And But once that was in there, it was unshakable. They believed it. They weren't lying. They believed it. But it's funny. I feel like that's an event where there's where something different happened, but their brain encoded it very different from what actually happened, and it was absolutely the truth to that person.
1: It's interesting because it just shows. I mean, we are our brains are very sophisticated, uh, but we can be manipulated. And and there's this level of, I guess, and there's neural marketing, and there's all these interesting pathways. Um, you know. For the future, I mean, I know that something you're you're studying, say, um, autism or schizophrenia or different, you you feel that these um, what you're studying can be applied to new pathways to therapy. I think that's a very positive um, aspect. I'm also uh, not cautious, but when I think about the future, there also there's neural engineering, and I I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. You know, interfacing our brain and. I don't know, it just, it's the, the future is, uh, there are many different <laughs> roads open to us.
2: Yeah, it's hard to know where that stuff is gonna, going, going to go. And of course, everything with an upside often has a, a, a downside too. I mean, you know, it it's, it's very convenient for me to talk to my, uh, you know, um, Speakers and, and have them turn on music or whatever. And it might be very convenient for my computer to read my thoughts so it could move my cursors around and pull up stuff much quicker than I, than I could otherwise. But there's obviously a downside to having your thoughts read and streamed over the internet to some interface that's going to do this computation. There's privacy issues there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm um, cautious about um, neural engineering. What our labs work is doing, we're trying to um, work on interventions that will alleviate um, human disease and brain brain disorders. Which is, we're not trying to suck memories out of your head. We're trying to improve your brain's op- operation, which is which is a different thing.
1: Yeah, I think that that's definitely on the positive end, and I think that there's even positive applications on the other, but I wouldn't, you know, it's a kind of realm of sci-fi where you think about your brain being hacked by somebody (laughs) if you had had these um, instruments in your brain. The more you discover about the brain, and as we discover the the different areas we've been discussing, sort of like the amygdala and different areas that have, you know, you know, govern executive function, as you discover more about it, um, there's also... It has applications for understanding the reasons behind criminal behavior. Sometimes, or, you know, things that we thought uh, were perhaps entirely volitional that might have different origins. So, what um, are your reflections on that? It's very
2: much in the early stages, but there's a growing realization in in um, the legal profession that some criminal behavior may be the result of brain disorders, like uh, um, dysfunctions in the frontal lobe of your brain. The frontal lobe of your brain is the executive part of your brain. It's the part of your brain that says, oh, wait, don't do that. That would be the wrong thing to do. Do this instead. That's much better. It's the part of the uh, brain that develops last. It develops uh, when you're in your 20s. And I don't know about you, and I'm sometimes I'm amazed I survived my teenage years, considering uh, some of the impulsive behavior I was involved in. It's also the reason I think this will not be a popular uh, statement, but it's also the reason I think that the uh, driving age should be raised to about 25, because until about at least until your early 20s, your brain is not fully developed in this crucial part of your brain that is more goal-directed and more says this is the right thing to do in the in the in the long term. Go do that instead of doing this thing that uh, that's, might be desirable in the short term, but really damaging in the long term. It's, it's the part of your brain that projects yourself into the future and goes after, after long-term goals. And there's a growing realization or some realization in the legal field that a lot of the like, impulsive behaviors that result in criminality may come from dysfunctions like in the frontal lobe. And I think that can be taken into account when when sentencing people, when, when deciding whether to put them in jail or, or versus versus treatment. I mean, there, it's a very, it's, it's in this very early stages, a lot of difficult questions to be addressed, but it's something that I think should be taken in, into account in some cases, many cases.
1: Yeah. And I think for, particularly for young people, as well, as you say, their brains are still forming and then you have the hormones added into the mix. And is that, you know, it's not... I don't even know if I would entirely recognize my brain as a teenager. <laughs> and we would make different decisions entirely.
2: Oh, I hear you. Yeah, totally. Well, hormones is a big factor. And you know, there's a lot of social pressures. You're trying to figure, figure yourself out when you're a teenager. And on top of all that is a part of your brain that really um, has the bigger picture, the wider context. The long view of things isn't really quite fully online yet. So that's a bit of a, uh, it's a difficult mix. Let's put it that way.
1: And I wonder. Uh, and sorry for skipping around because I am just so fascinated in the brain and creativity. Um, you know, I often wonder about dreams and what they reveal or what's really going on. And and I have such detailed dreams myself. It's like exhausting when I wake up and I remember them all the time. Uh, but you know, what have what has your research revealed about dreams or? Do you find them interesting?
2: Sure. Well, dreams, dreams, I mean, they are interesting and they're very important to brain function because if you're prevented from dreaming, you're prevented from sleeping, you essentially go psychotic. I mean, you have to you have to dream. Um, there's a few things that go on during sleep. During uh, sleep, your brain has its metabolic uh, processes where it gets rid of all the um, junk that was that was accumulating in your brain during the day. That's straightforward. Uh, well, not straightforward, but it's, it's a metabolism, uh, um, biochemical kind of thing. But dreams, dreams uh, what you're often doing in dreams is you're, you're replaying the events of the day in some format. And for example, my colleague, uh, Matt Wilson, he's done a number of studies where he has um, rats running around a, a maze, then he lets them go to sleep and they can actually see the brain, the rat's brain replaying the, the steps in the maze. And they replay them both forward and backward. and They replay them at different speeds. And I think that's where dreams come from to, to some extent or to maybe to a large extent, your, your brain replaying uh, the events of the day in different formats, different orders, putting them together and, and mushing things together to, so they seem kind of uh, disjointed and sometimes nonsensical, but they really are kind of fodder from the day's events or events recent events that are being um, pushed together and evaluated. And, and one of the theories about that is what your brain is doing is your brain using, is using the time during sleep, during dreaming to consolidate the memories that are important and get rid of the ones that are, that are that are less important. So it's a kind of a pruning process. Your brain is, is trying to keep the stuff that's important and get rid of all, all the junk it doesn't need.
1: Oh, I must be doing a huge shedding process every day. <laughs> you no, know, we all
2: do. We all do. Everybody does. I don't remember my dreams because I'm kind of a sound sleeper. When I uh, People who remember their dreams are people who tend to wake up or go into superficial stages of uh, um, sleep um, more often during the night. Because um, when you wake up, you tend to remember the dream, then, then it fades from memory very quickly. People say, I don't dream. They dream. They just don't remember them because they're probably sleeping a little deeper than others.
1: Right. That's interesting to know. And, you know, you're touching on it there when you're just, dis- we were discussing before, you know, our um, juvenile selves or like risk-taking behavior and these kind of things that happen when we're younger. And I'm wondering, you some people are capable of a lot of physical bravery. I imagine, and I don't know if there's a correlation, is that they're able to put aside uh, their, you know, long-term feelings about, oh, <laughs> this is going to damage my body. Is this going to, you know, I'm going to have a kind of a, a, you know, pain so they were able to put that aside. So, do what do we know about the brain in relationship to in, um, increasing risk-taking behavior or increased tolerance uh, for physical bravery and that kind of thing? Like, as you think about sports psychology and training.
2: Well, when it comes to, like bravery, I mean, that, that's that's a complex problem because there, there's there's a there's a number of factors at play here. It's like your own assessment about short-term risks short-term goals versus versus long long-term outcomes and different people weigh that differently and that's very much a frontal cortex function that that sort of long-term long view long view of things um, there's other things like different people have different there's a part of your brain called the amygdala that's responsible for things like fear and, and uh, uh, those kind of emotions and uh, different people have different different amygdala some people have a strong response some people have a um, Weaker response. And there's some top down regulation there from the frontal cortex, your brain's executive, which can often tell the amygdala, hey, I know you're starting to get work, but don't, don't overreact. It's okay. You know, So, not only do you have different people with different levels of frontal cortex function, you have different people with different levels of amygdala function, different people weigh different factors differently. So, it's a very complex, knotty uh, problem this idea of who's, who's going to react in different ways in, 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 a, in a stressful or dangerous situation. So I don't have a simple answer for you, unfortunately, because nothing about the brain is simple. I've made a career out of like pointing out it's not as simple as you think.
1: And I think that, but I think that your uh, research has applications, I think, in sports training or any other kind of training from business level or whatever. There, We were talking before a little bit about the blind spots and and that can really. Yeah,
2: Yeah, so yeah, my my lab made a um, discovery that, that surprised me a number of years ago. So. Right now, if you're looking out at, at, at the world, you think you're you think you're taking in everything simultaneously. Like you're, you're, your brain is a uh, is like a video camera with a wide angle lens. That's what's not what's going on because yet your conscious mind is such a limited bandwidth. What your brain is doing is is uh, sampling different parts of the visual field in front of you by moving your eyes around, then piecing that all together to this illusion that you're seeing everything that's in front of you. Well, it used to be thought that every one of these snapshots, when you look around, your brain's just taking in information from all over the visual field, whatever it can, then moving on to the next snapshot. Well, our lab discovered that you, your brain does not, individual brains do not perceive things equally across their field of view, okay? So some people, it used to be thought that your ability to perceive was more or less even across uh, your visual field. Our lab discovered that different people have different bandwidths, different capacities in different parts of their visual field. So, it's, it's uneven. Some people have a large capacity in the upper right. Some people have a large capacity on the upper left. Some people lower left. It varies highly from, from person to person. You have hot spots where you can perceive a lot, and you have blind spots where you can perceive very little. And that is, it's different for different people. And your brain manages to figure the, figure this stuff out um, eventually and in a very unconscious level. So, for example, when I, um, made this discovery, we uh, devised this test. And I took the test myself and I realized that I have a, I have a um, blind spot on my right and I have larger capacity on my left. Well, for years, for years, I've always set up my desktop with a screen in front of me and a screen on the left and never anything on the right. I never knew why I did that. I just did it because it felt natural to me. I had ne- when something was on the right, I found it distracting or I'd, it was just, it, it just made me feel um, uneasy. Well, now I know why I took my test because your brain often does this. If, you're, if there's certain things that don't function well, or there are certain things your brain needs to do, it closes the loop. It, 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 it um, works with its own strengths and mitigates its own weaknesses by changing your behavior often at an unconscious level. So my brain over years figured out that I like things on my left and I, I don't like things on my right. I founded this company with this test called SplitSage. And my CEO of the company, he's the exact opposite. He's strong on the right and weak on the left, and he has the exact opposite experience than me. So, what can you do with that? Well, we have a, a, a simple uh, test. It takes just a few minutes, and then you take this test, and I know where your hot spots are and where your blind spots are in your field of view. And what can you do with that? Well, you know, different car manufacturers, for example, are designing um, heads up displays for windshields. If you take our tests, we can we can custom the, um, customize the heads up display for you as an individual driver. So we put more things where you have more bandwidth and less things where you have less bandwidth and that distracts you from the road less. It's less of a distraction from the road and it improves uh, um, driving safety. You have a sports team. If I'm training, if I'm a football player or a soccer player, if I know that I'm I'm weak on the left and strong on the right, I can remind myself, you know, check my left, check my left. And I can mitigate that weakness by reminding myself to check the weak spot. Or if you have a team, putting a team together, you want um, people who are strong on the right to be on the right. people are strong on the left to be on the left. That way you you have everybody working towards their strength and other people mitigating individual weaknesses.
1: And does this have something to do or is there a correlation between, you know, they say some people are more left-brained or right-brained and would knowing this or knowing one's weaknesses and strengths you know, in the past, like people who are left handed, they made them right with their right hand, like yeah, knowing yeah. where the blind spot is, would, could you then kind of exercise the other side? Well, you can't really, this
2: is, has to do with individually how your, how your brain is wired up. So you can't do much, like if I'm weak on the, the right, um, I can't make my right stronger. But what I can do is change my behavior so my behavior mitigates that weakness on my right. And that's what we can do. So as for left brain versus right brain thing, a lot of that is like in the popular culture, a lot of it is really overblown and it's not really so true. Um, You're using your whole brain. Uh, There's not really left brain, there's creative people, analytical people, but it's not really a left brain versus right brain thing. Having said that, there is a little tiny kernel of truth, there's a kernel of truth to it, in that the left, your left brain tends to be more hypothesis driven, more uh, more trying to figure out what the story is. You mentioned earlier that, the, that the, your brain makes up stories. Well, between the right and left hemisphere, your left brain is more of a story maker than your right brain. Your right brain is more experiential. But we know that under, under very careful testing, you don't really notice that in day to day, because you're constantly, you know, using both halves of your brain, looking around, you're, you're pulling the two parts of your brain together, so they get on the same page, but there is a kernel of truth in the sense that your left brain does have more of this, uh, you know, uh, analytical and your right brain more of experiential, maybe even creative uh, um, aspect to it. But generally, uh, you're using your whole brain for er everything you do. Often these science myths, there's often a kernel of truth and a lot of like stuff that's exaggerated.
1: I suspect, and I'm not sure if this bears out, but I suspect that certain kinds of athletes or dancers kind of find a way to be more fluid or increase their spectrum. Because I know that dancers will often like play a role and then maybe the next night they'll have to play the opposite roll yeah. like they jump around so I feel like maybe there is a way but it's really you have to be a pro <laughs> I think to to increase that bandwidth or that uh, spectrum of sight somehow well, oh yeah
2: yeah exactly this goes back to what we talked about um earlier about this um limited capacity for a conscious uh your conscious mind and therefore a lot of stuff has to happen unconsciously so how one way your brain's do, besides categorizing things as like a table or a chair another way your brain compresses data. Another way your brain deals with this limited capacity for, for conscious thought is that it um, it makes things unconscious habits when it can. So you, that's where expertise comes from. You practice something over and over and over again, and it becomes so routine to you, do, you don't have to think about it consciously. And that frees up bandwidth in your conscious mind. So you, you, you take something that's initially conscious and you make it unconscious by practice. And by making it unconscious, You can execute it without having to devote a lot of of cognitive resources, a lot of this limited bandwidth for consciousness to that thing. So a good example is playing music. So when you first learn to play an instrument, you're having to think about every little thing you do, every little um, finger play bass guitar, every every fingering you make, you got to think about every little thing you do. you got to think about the mechanics of how you're doing it. But you play, you play, you play, you play. And now the mechanics are all totally unconscious to me. They're all in what's called muscle memory. Which is not really in your muscles, it's in your unconscious mind. But it's now in muscle memory. So when I'm playing music, I don't have to think about the mechanics of how to play a scale I want to play or how to play a uh, sequence of notes I want to play. I think I want to play this and my hands do it automatically. So what does that give me? That gives me why well, not having to devote this limited bandwidth consciousness to the mechanics of how to play, since this is now wrote, I can think more about, instead of the mechanics of how to play, I can think about how to make it musical. In other words, because these movements are all now in my muscle memory, all unconscious, when I'm playing, I don't have to think about how to do, I can think about how to make it more interesting, how to make it better, how to express myself, because I freed up that territory in in my conscious mind.
1: Exactly, and then you can think about uh, nuance or the artistry involved. You know, I'm wondering. You know, what are the effects of anger on the brain? Uh, we know we were talking a little bit about how our devices have changed. Likewise, in the last few decades, really, media has changed a lot too. It's kind of been amped up. Public discourse is kind of like trying to keeps us keeps us watching. We get angry. What does that do to our brains and how we process information? And you know, what are your personal thoughts in the way you know media is now?
2: Oh, God. (laughs) Where do you begin with that? Um, Well, one thing is that, again, because perception is a construct, we're bringing our own predictions to to what we see. Memory is also a a construct, by the way, in the same way. So interesting thing about memory is that every time you recall long-term memory, you recall something from the past that happened. Every time you recall and think about it consciously, you change it a little bit. Then, when it gets restored back into the long-term memory, it gets restored in the uh, altered form. So, when you're th- when you every time you think about an old memory, you're changing the memory and changing the memory of it. Uh, so, you can easily see how people who are bringing their own predictions to uh, their perceptions and then reforming their memories every time they think about it, you can create your own story along any fantastical line you want, just by by this self reinforcing uh, uh, process. And it sounds like a strange way to do memory. Why why should I just hold on to my memories exactly as they happen? Why why is my brain constantly changing them? That's actually very, very adaptive because it's a process called consolidation. When you think about old memories, you're making them stronger and changing them. You're making them stronger because you want to hold on to them. Because if you think about them again, they're obviously important memories. You're changing them because you're adapting them to meet what you need to do with them. So by modifying the memories, you're creating a larger database of things and modifying them in a way that's useful for your brain. So normally, this makes your brain work better because you're, you're not. If you don't think about an old memory, you gradually lose it. So your brain is by this process of recalling and reforming the memories. Your brain is reinforcing the memories you use and getting rid of the ones you don't need, so it doesn't get overwhelmed. But it's also changing the memories in in a way that makes them makes them more adaptive to, to um, what we need to do with them.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, changing memories, um, you, well, it's hard to address that question about media, but I'm wondering how it's it, we're we're emotionally responding a lot, right?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I find, you know, and, and I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember that news used to be different. And there's yeah. a lot of <laughs> triggers, <laughs> a, lot, a lot different. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a lot of triggers out there and even as you say, memories are different for people. Like in America, it's kind of almost split down the middle where you say fake news to one group and that means something. You say fake news to another group and they think it's uh, an election has been stolen. You say it to another group and it's a different set of uh, misinformation. So we're fed a lot of opinions now. I don't know if you can really opinionate on that, but if you analyze what anger does to the brain, how does that...
2: Yeah, I didn't answer the question about anger, but that, the, the emotions just amp everything up. Emotions just turn everything up up to eleven. So that, this process about perceiving what you want to perceive, about reconstructing the memories the way you want to co- reconstruct them, emotions just make everything that happened more fast. It just makes more of it. It's like it, like it turns everything up in your brain because your brain, for good reason, has evolved to think that anything that produces an emotion must be something that's really really important. So therefore, everything get the memories get stamped in a way, and they get they get modified quicker because your brain is is um, is amping up its, its normal process. But generally, um, things like anger, the like anger, anger is a stress, so people should should avoid uh, anger and uh, stress is really really bad for your health and bad for your brain. And anger is kind of like is stress, but this um this process of getting angry about things just amps up this process of you searching for the things that that make you feel better about the, about this anger and that process of reconstructing memories and reconstructing perception along the lines of what you already think is just going to be driven harder and harder by, by emotional responses in your brain
1: and so, in terms of art, because you spoke about how music for you is a meditative practice that relieves stress, and and it's it's a it's about beauty. I I kind of prefer to have my emotions like exercise those emotions there that could be negative or positive, and keep my news factual. <laughs> That's yeah. my own personal preference. Um. So, what do you you know? What are your uh, reflections on how you know what art does to the brain? How can it help us learn better, be or even be better, or be feel more? In, harmony with our communities.
2: Art is great for, uh, you know, like I said, for, for meditation, for stress relieving, for harmony. Harmony is a good, good way of putting it. I mean, it makes you, it takes you out of yourself. That's the whole thing. It, it, it Experiencing great art is, is a, is a way of like leaving the thoughts inside your, banging around your own skull and Putting yourself out into a, a larger context, getting outside yourself, and and seeing things from a different perspective—that's not just pinging around the inside of your own skull. And I find that just very true. I'm not only a um, musician; I, I'm a music fan. I go out to see a lot of shows. And there's something like you know when, when you're when you're seeing a, a great performance. There's something you know, um, transit something just just gives you this broader, like uh, you rise above yourself and you're taken outside yourself and you feel part of a lar- larger hole, which you don't get when you're just watching TV and banging around inside your own head.
1: Yeah. And I feel, you know, we were talking, you know, right from the beginning of this conversation, we were talking a little bit about our unconscious mind and how, you know, animals and the, the grace of that, and how our brains were formed, you know, all these many years ago. And my feelings about art is like, whether it's through music, we get closer to that kind of that spiritual instinctive sense that you might notice that like musicians like birds do that they have that murmurations as they move through the sky. My feeling is that the arts is how we get close to that artistic and natural spirit, we may have lost in other ways.
2: Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, like as one recurring theme of what we've in our discussion is that how your brain brings all these, brings a lot of baggage to your experience. You're constantly seeing what you want to see. You're remembering things the way you want to remember them. One good thing about art is that it, it gets you more, it sort of strips away all that baggage and it gets you more toward the toward the experiential end of things, more like animals, like like, like we're we're experiencing things for what they are. and we're, we're, we're reveling in the experience itself rather than what we're bringing to the, to, to the experience. Now a lot of art is interpretation too, but a lot of great art is just letting it wash over you, which, which is a uh, something that we don't do enough of every day, in my opinion.
1: And so in your lab, you know, so what are some things that you're, some projects you're excited to be you know, working on, you know, uh, that sense of discovery?
2: Well, one thing we're working on now is, I mentioned this idea your brain is constantly bringing predictions to your experiences. And it's something called predictive coding. Your brain is constantly anticipating what's coming in the, the next second or so, and your brain is filtering out things that were expected and letting things that are unexpected be fully processed. Your brain needs to do this. Because the brain would be overwhelmed otherwise, you can't possibly process everything. So we're working on a theory now where we think that this there's a um, there's an interplay, a balance between the what we call feedforward signals, the sensory information coming into your brain, and feedback signals, these predictions your brain is making. And normal cognition is the proper balance between this proper balance between your predictions and your experience. Learning how to balance that in a proper way. Now, when it goes out of balance, that leads to lots of problems in your, in your brain, like, the, uh, like for example, autism, a major new theory of autism is that there's an imbalance between these feedback and feed-forward signals, a, a problem of this predictive coding. The, the, the brain no longer makes predictions. So everything just gets flooded into your, into your, um, into your brain. All the sensory inputs get flooded into your brain as so there's no predictions to filter out a lot of them. Your brain gets overwhelmed. Okay, And the opposite of that would be things like schizophrenia, where there's too much predictions, too much feedback, and no reality checking from, from the outside world. So our brain, we have uh, we, over the past few years developed this theory that these two signals, the feedback, the prediction signals, and the feed forward signals are carried by two different frequencies of brain waves in your brain. The predictions are carried by low, low frequencies, and the sensory information is created by high frequencies. It's like two different spots on the FM dial. To the right of the FM dial is your sensory input, and to the left of the FM dial are your predictions. So your brain manages to balance these two things, and they interplay together in a push pull kind of way. So we think that we're, we're uh, working on this theory now, and we think that if we can, uh, we can harness the, the, these um, brain waves, we can change them, we can restore that balance in dysfunctional brains and, bring, uh, and mitigate some of these uh, neuropsychiatric disorders.
1: Yes. It's, it's so interesting. And I heard about like, there's magnetic therapy or, I mean, I don't know how, at what stage in development or how that works in terms of long-term depression and that kind of treatment.
2: Well, right now we're working on a, we're working on the base, basic um, theory, marshalling um, evidence for it and really figuring out how it works, but treatments could come. For example, there's things like um, non-invasive electrical brain stimulation, where you could put in a, a cap on your head with electrodes and by activating very low power electrical fields, by activating them at the right frequency, you can restore that balance between these two different low and high frequency brain waves. Or there's things like neural feedback, where you can actually record EEG from your head, from your scalp, and you can learn to train by meditating. You can learn to rebalance the brain waves themselves. Those are the kind of things that are the long-term goal of this research. But right now we're doing, we're, a, we're not a clinical laboratory. We're a basic research laboratory. We're trying to figure out flesh out the basic theory of how this works and find support for it, but always with an eye towards therapeutic interventions.
1: Well, it's really beautiful work. Imagine being able to just mitigate. So I was wondering, as you think about your lifetime in neuroscience and things you've learned, important life lessons you've learned along the way, important teachers, and as you think about the future, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember?
2: Uh, well, first of all, don't be afraid of hard work course. But going along with that is like it's always important to do something that really interests you, have a passion about what you do. When I started college, I remember a freshman advisor said to me, well, pick a major for something you'd really be interested in doing because you'll work much harder at it and your passion will drive you. And those are that was great advice. Now, as far as my career goes, one thing, I think the main thing I learned, I learned this from my own PhD advisor, Charlie Gross, is that dogma is a bad thing. Science exists to overturn dogma. Dogma are your preconceived notions. And scientists, we build on the past in in science, we move forward to the future. We don't revere the past. The past is dogma. So, one thing I think that's helped me as as a scientist is I've always had a healthy skepticism towards dogma. I'm always looking for how to, ways to prove dogma wrong, because again, dogma is where we are, where we want to be somewhere else where we're going. And I think the most important lesson I learned is that you should be skeptical of dogma, but especially be skeptical of your own dogma. Don't buy too heavily into your own ideas. And through my career, I've uh, I've um, thought one way, and then when enough evidence came along, and changed my mind, I changed my mind. I didn't, I didn't hang on and, and, um, and defend my, my old ideas. I threw my old ideas away and moved on the new ones because I think that's the way science should work. So you can't have, you gotta have the, um, it's important to have some humility and humbleness in science. You can't think you have all the answers. It's important to, have, to realize that you don't have any of the answers and everything you're doing is a stepping stone to somewhere else, to the future and so forth. So you shouldn't revere those stepping stones. You need to get past them.
1: Yeah and I think it you know having an open mind wow it's something it's it it takes years to to learn that and sometimes the stepping stones as you say is about mistakes it's just we have to make mistakes to then find the new way and to to move forward so thank you professor earl miller for sharing your insights into cognition consciousness decision making and attention by helping us understand our minds and our memories we can focus better and create positive futures Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
2: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: The creative process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Rachel Lee. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.